Welcome back, creeps. Hello, everyone. If you're new to this program, I am Adam. I'm Dulce. And this week, we had a bit of a head-wrecking week in terms of everything that I touched <laughs> just seemed to die. Um, had to, like, reconfigure my laptop and get a new hard drive and stuff like that. So, here we are. And this week is actually a pretty special week for us because we have our first ever promo code. Yay. So it's from Yay. our... Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was my voice. I think I might be coming down with something. You and me both. So I had a weird uh, dream last night. I didn't, I didn't sleep well. And then I think I might be coming down with something. I had this weird dream that my lacunas was my cousin. And I was trying to tell her how to handle the monster truck that we just repossessed off this couple that had to go to jail so yeah that was weird that is weird almost as weird as you saying my lacunas who says that isn't that how you pronounce her name that was me lacunas isn't it is it that's what i've been saying all these years oh that so is weird though did you find the promo code yeah so we're going to talk about our good friends over at lawless eyewear um it's a well i don't know how long they've been going for but they're a fairly new company um and they're from ireland so if you like to support local businesses this is the place to go i have not yet received my glasses because we are in america and so they're on their way over to me but so it's a european brand yeah it's specifically from ireland cool yeah and sorry i missed that <laughs> and when i was gonna buy these i was like because Dulce is like, you need to get new sunglasses. Because his current ones look awful. Yeah, they're like anybody who knows me knows that I've been wearing the same pair of Ray-Bans for like five fucking years. But I've used them as like Everything. protective glasses and all like when I was like working and stuff like that. So they've really been through the mill and I dropped them like at least eight times a fucking day. So I texted my friend over at Lawless Eyewear and I was like, told her what was up. And I was like, are these things sturdy? And she sends me back a video of her holding hers in her hand and just bending them in two. And then they pop back into position like brand new. She was like, yeah, they're pretty good. <laughs> so this is what they told me about them. They have flex frame technology. They're made from a special plastic that can be bent and returned back into shape. So I guess that's what that is. Yeah. Uh, UHD lenses with no distortion zeiss lenses i don't know they made the lenses on the camera that went to the moon holy shit nice that's insane and they are the number one lens manufacturers in the world all prescription lenses and premium lenses are zeiss there's a lifetime guarantee with these things and they do like your prescription glasses and stuff like that and most importantly born and bred in ireland mm -hmm. is their thing so yeah they're like less than half the price of the ray-bans mm -hmm. and they look just as good and i can't wait to get them yeah and they, so. they do have uh this thing where you can customize the color of the frames the lenses and stuff like that and we probably sound like we're sponsored but we're not we're just yeah. giving her a shout out um we have a code but it's not affiliated this yeah. is purely for you to just get a discount basically yeah so it's just creep mm -hmm. when you go on to lawlesseyewear.com you can input the code 
creep. It has to be all capital letters. So big creep. And you'll get 15% off. Big creep. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, C-R-E-E-P, all caps. And yeah, there you go. They're actually running a competition at the minute as well. So if you do go check them out, you can put your name in for that as well. And you might win four pairs of glasses. Sick. <laughs> yeah. Hope I didn't butcher it too much. But I'm very excited about these glasses. I can't wait to get them. And I guess it's my turn to go first. Yeah. So this week I'm going to talk about a natural disaster. And it's definitely one of my biggest fears. Like of all time. A tsunami? A tsunami, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to go back to Japan in 2011. Okay. So this is a very recent yeah, it's 10 um, years. Thing. Yeah, it's only 10 years ago. Yeah. Literally, pretty much 10 years ago this fucking month. So, 2.46 p.m., March 11th, 2011. An earthquake of magnitude 8.9 hits 231 miles northeast of Tokyo, 81 miles east of, of Sendai, and at a depth of 15.2 miles. Okay, this was the fifth largest earthquake in the world at least since 1900. I think maybe that's when they were able to actually start recording these things. And it was the largest to ever hit Japan. The Pacific Tsunami Warning Center issued a tsunami warning for the Pacific Ocean from Japan to the US West Coast. These alerts sound in more than 50 countries and territories. That's how big this fucking thing was. Within an hour after the earthquake, a wall of water up to 30 feet high washes over the Japanese coast. These waves eventually got up to 40 meters or 132 feet high. Damn. That's around like a 10 or 12 story building. Mm -hmm. Just water. Just straight a up water. A fucking wall of water, yeah. dude. On top of all that, after the tsunami came in and destroyed everything, it started snowing. What the fuck? Yeah. So like, I mean, it was snowing in Ireland briefly this week as well. March is still a cold time of year in a lot of places. But it was really just like when things just couldn't get any worse. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that's the situation. It was freezing cold mm -hmm. and now everything's gone. Everything's wet. Yeah. And gone and destroyed. Yeah. So there's footage of this and I'll show you later because it was, it was just mind blowing. Yeah. And like, yeah, we watched like these scary ass ghost videos and mad horror movies and stuff like that. But this is just scared you scared me to the core anyway because yeah like that like it's just you watch the water come and it just doesn't stop yeah like you're watching people standing on top of buildings mm -hmm. thinking they're safe taking videos of the thing and the next thing the whole building is gone yeah boats trains everything cars it's just anyway as well as all this it also caused the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant to have a melt major meltdown, mm -hmm. which was said to be the worst um, nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. So what does that mean, a meltdown? As in, like, the nuclear power plant exploded and, like, they couldn't contain the radiation. Whoa. Yeah, so... Uh, I can't. I, I might have the stats somewhere down here, but it was like it forced even more people, people who weren't necessarily affected by the flood. Mm -hmm. Now they had to leave their homes because the air wasn't safe anymore. 
That's fucking insane. Oh, yeah. So it literally caused hundreds of thousands of people to be evacuated while so many others were literally fleeing for their lives. Mm -hmm. All in all, over 15 and a half thousand people, and I saw up to 18,000 people died as a result of the tsunami and over two and a half thousand are still unaccounted for. More than 450,000 people were left homeless and 120,000 buildings were destroyed all in a matter of minutes. That's fucking insane. Yeah. So I read somewhere that it flooded over 200 square miles of land and caused over $220 billion worth of damage. A lot of areas were just completely leveled and looked like a wasteland. Yeah. For like a good few years afterwards while reconstruction was that's underway. That's so sad. So that's horrific. Yeah. Okay, and I'm sorry that I just had to start off on that. Um, You're just bumming me out, man. Yeah, right. Like there's no, <laughs> like you can't joke about this thing. Like it's, it happened and it's horrible. And that's it. And we're just going to shit on people's Friday coming up. <laughs> yeah, right. So there's everyone driving to work being like, Jesus Christ. Well, in retrospect, they're probably like, well, my boss yelled at me today, but at least there's no fucking. Tsunami. Yeah, right. Yeah. So why am I talking about it? Because of all the deaths. Uh, because of all the deaths, obviously. Yeah. And like, yeah, it is one of my biggest fears. Like, I literally have been having this nightmare since I was a child. Well, you know, there's this scary ass fucking movie that shows a tsunami happening in some fucking tropical island and it i think it's it's a it's a movie based on an actual tsunami i'm not sure which one it was the one in thailand if it's the one in the movie i'm thinking of. and it's terrifying yeah it was like a, a family was visiting yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. some like tropical Clean and ocean i'll tell you what oh fuck it is. they fucking love that movie it's crazy so anyway within three months of the disaster people started talking about ghostly encounters Damn. with tsunami victims. Mm -hmm. Victims' faces were seen in puddles on the ground, oh, dude. wandering aimlessly on beaches, knocking on people's doors in the middle of the night. Mm. I'm going to say my notes might actually be a little, uh, I might end up going back on myself, but I was trying to pick from like six or seven different things yeah, and like pick the juiciest stuff and, you know, different things. But anyway. One lady spoke about answering the door to someone one night and this person was completely saturated, soaking wet, and they just wanted a change of clothes. Wow. The lady got them fresh clothes, gave them to them, and then they just went on their way. Huh. These stories were so abundant and credible at the time that people start documenting them. Mm. People started documenting them. A couple of people wrote books. One guy in particular, his name is Parry, and said that quite frankly, this may be some sort of mass hallucination. We don't know. Like some sort of group PTSD. Oh, oh I was going to say like a uh, hallucination, like uh, a side effect of the nuclear meltdown. Situation. I mean, just the whole thing was so fucking traumatic for everyone. Yeah, Eddie. that makes sense too. Yeah. But they can't, they couldn't disprove any of these stories. Right. And one big reason for this was that there was taxi fares. Okay, this is, sounds strange. There were so many reports, specifically from taxi drivers, to come out around this time that in that by 2016, a graduate student named uh, Yuka Kudo traveled to a smaller town called Ishinomaki, uh, which was one of the worst affected cities. Uh -huh. And because she wanted to study the after effects of the disaster. So... She studied, I want to say social, sci 
Social studies? Social science, I think, oh, rather okay. than social studies. Or I don't know what the fucking difference is. Anyway, she wanted to go and see how it had an effect like on uh, the economics of the place as well as the people as as well as the people. I cannot talk today. I just slow down. <laughs> but when she gets there, she decides she's going to ask these local taxi drivers. She asks a hundred of them to talk about what they've seen. And seven come forward. The first driver told her that a couple of months after the tsunami, he was driving around the area looking for customers. And he wasn't being like, he wasn't overly hopeful because this area was like mostly decimated. But I think what was happening was that like certain businesses were popping back up where they used to be. Mm. So you might have to drive through like a huge abandoned area to get to one specific business. And then... Yeah, that makes sense. This seems to be the why they were like floating around there. Mm-hmm. He sees a young woman waving him down. It's the middle of summer at this point, and she's wearing a big, heavy winter coat. She's also soaking wet. Mm. It hasn't rained in days, the driver realizes as he pulls over to pick her up. She gets in the back of his cab and asks to go to the Minamihama district. The driver tells her it's basically non-existent after all that's happened and asks, are you sure? After a long pause, the woman asks in a shaky voice, have I died? <gasps> the driver turns around to look at her and there's nobody there. Oh my God. And so these stories seem to go. Oh, Another driver cool. told about picking up a 20-something-year-old man who seemed just very confused. And anytime the driver asked him where he needed to go, he would just point straight ahead until he eventually said, Hiyoriyama? which is a mountain park near the city. So the driver takes him on his way and brings him to a plateau on the summit. And this seems like the drop-off point, Mm -hmm. like a a car park or whatever. But it's like a decent way out of the city, you know? And he turns around to take his fare from the young man. And the guy's gone. Yeah. And here's this taxi driver in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Out of the money. And he's like getting out to see like, shit, did this guy like run off? Nothing. Mm. Now, these might seem like terrifying local stories, but one professor said something along the lines of like, we can't like just disregard these stories because these ghost stories have actual receipts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, these are technically documented. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And someone had to pay for these trips like this wasn't even or well was just only 10 years ago so these taxi drivers were regulated taxi drivers driving for a big company you know Mm -hmm. or certainly like that's how it works at home so i'm assuming it's the same here yeah and it's like they weren't just out getting cash jobs like undocumented shit on their own these guys had to log every trip with their base and Mm. ended up having to pay out of pocket out of their own pocket they did this because for one like, how are they supposed to argue this with their boss? Exactly. And also because the Japanese seem to have such a nice understanding and belief and relationship with death that they all seem to think that even though, yeah, like these experiences were terrifying, it was also like an honor. And they all agreed that they would gladly accept and pay for these ghost passengers if it meant that they were helping them in any way. Oh. So they... Obviously, like, they're not going around hoping for fucking ghost passengers, but they're, like, they feel like it's their job yeah. to accept and help 
them in any way that they can, which is like super fucking noble. If I'm a taxi driver, I'd be like, <laughs> first of all, you're soaking wake it out of my car. <laughs> Second of all, who the fuck is going to pay for this? <laughs> so not everyone feels this way, I'm sure. Mm. Like, yeah, it's like a, it wouldn't be a fair generalization considering there's probably chickens out there just like this. Yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like there's one, that one guy in particular who hates when it rains because he genuinely believes he can see the eyes of victims he once knew in puddles. Like that's just one person who is experiencing that. Yeah. And like the poor bastard now is afraid anytime it rains. That's crazy. A fire station in Tagaho, I think, sorry about these pronunciations said that they were receiving non-stop calls from one person and eventually they all had to go to the ruins where this call was coming from. And like they went out there so much that they knew this isn't an actual person. Like this is a spirit mm-hmm. call. So the whole fire department would go to these ruins and pray and then they would stop receiving calls. But this actually happened in multiple fire departments from multiple different addresses. So now it's just like a protocol that, well, probably not now. They've, they've probably like stopped by this stage. But as these ghost calls would come in, the fire department would suit up, go on out, pray around the the address that it was coming from or the general area. And then the calls would stop one by one. Mm. So literally like the whole story or the, the whole community or the, this whole fucking section of a country is like gradually putting these souls to rest, so yeah. to speak. But one kind of nice story, I thought it was nice because I could literally like picture Granny doing this if she was a suicide or if she was a tsunami ghost. Mm-hmm. An old woman is said to visit a refugee home in Onagawa, and she just sits down and has a cup of tea. She did this regularly enough, and they knew who she was when she would come in. And they only knew that she was a ghost because when she left, her cushion was always left soaked with seawater. Whoa. I don't know who discovered that it was actually seawater, not just regular water. I would assume (laughs) the way it smells. Maybe, maybe that's it. When reading what was on Screen Rant, which was just kind of them slating an Unsolved Mysteries episode, Mm -hmm. which kind of brought all this to light. But everybody seemed to dislike this episode. Like the Unsolved Mysteries fans were like this isn't an unsolved mystery enough for me to enjoy this and then the people who were like knew their stuff about the tsunami spirits or ghosts were like oh they didn't even cover this much you know blah Mm. blah blah the usual kind of crap but like that being said it's a 40 minute show yeah that's true they tried their best i guess what do you want yeah (laughs) and this main author guy parry had said in his book like so many different stories and stuff like that. But anyway, I'm not discussing the episode. But one thing they mentioned was that it was maybe a little bit too grim. There was actually, this is a quote, a fight between two feuding psychics regarding Okawa Elementary School, a school where 74 of 75 students died during the tsunami. One psychic, recruited by one of the parents of the dead children, spun a horrific picture of seeing the spirits of the dead crawling on the ground near the school, some of them apparently stuck in invisible water and thrashing as if they were drowning in midair. Another psychic named Sumi said this was nonsense. 
and that the spirits of the children were at peace and that while some might think they were restless like searching for their living parents and trying to return home that in truth they already are home they are already in a very good place that's directly from that uh, screenrant.com but again i was reading that person who hired the psychic to go walking with their child she, the poor lady just never found her child mm-hmm. and as she was going around from what i understood was the psychic was describing like a residual image that he was seeing Mm -hmm. of these like like horrific like children struggling people dying in front of him in the streets but then in the next breath he was saying that they had hung loads of like handmade decorations from a tree for a certain celebration and he was saying that's not the wind blowing them that's the children playing with them Mm. and they're all so happy to be able to do that Mm -hmm. so i feel like there was two levels of energy in this place yeah i mean like the residual horrible shit and then the actual interactive i guess spirit Mm -hmm. so anyway i just wanted to include that two people who have also been like really involved in how this is playing out are reverend tayo kaneta and his wife amy they were featured pretty heavily in the unsolved mysteries episode and like rightly so they have helped hundreds if not thousands of people with grief counseling and just in general they're both really good people in the month after the tsunami hit Canetta personally performed over 200 funerals for victims families wow shortly after the tsunami Canetta and a, a group of other monks and his wife i i say i've read like monks and reverend and priests all separately so i'm not honestly sure like what religion or title he is or has but anyway him and a group of other people started up a traveling cafe called cafe de monco which is actually a pun because cafe de monk and also monku is the japanese word for complaint so they would go around to like different community centers and stuff they still do as far as i know and they would just have like I, i guess like tea and coffee and cakes Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and it's a place where people can come in survivors or victims families they can come and just either talk about their feelings talk about what happened or just know that they're in a place that other people have suffered these same things Mm -hmm. and they do like massages and shit like that like it's such a lovely thing yeah yeah yeah. and obviously like people can come in and like cry and do whatever they want and mm-hmm. like they're not judged because everybody's in the same fucking boat mm-hmm. it's like different flavors of therapy yeah right mm-hmm. and i guess it also helped them deal with all this as well you know mm-hmm. um Canada and his wife he also performs exorcisms whoa yeah on anyone who needs one he admits it may seem a little unorthodox i'm pretty sure it wasn't like in his training Mm-hmm. as a to become a monk or a reverend or whatever and he pretty much says like look i'm not here to judge you or test the legitimacy of your particular possession but if i can help you and if i can free these spirits or even just this guilt that you have or your grief then fuck it yeah like i'm not hurting anybody so mm-hmm. let's do it yeah so obviously that's me paraphrasing mm-hmm. like this guy's a monk he doesn't talk like that <laughs> yeah but he doesn't he, have an irish accent <laughs> yeah but he does genuinely believe that a lot of these wandering spirits have possessed people, mm-hmm. like unknowingly or un, 
willingly or whatever, but it, it is happening or has mm. happened. And his first case, they, they talk about a lady in the Unsolved Mysteries thing who, like, I think she had a really bad time. She kept having to come back to him and shit like that. But his first case came to him less than two weeks after the whole disaster. This guy, who was referred to as Ono because he didn't want his real name getting out, apparently he's, like, super ashamed of this. And he's described as a stocky, tough, young construction worker. A genuine person who takes everything at face value. When Reverend Canetta was describing him to the author of this particular article, he said, he's such an innocent person. You're from England, aren't you? He's like your Mr. Bean. (laughs) (laughs) Now, obviously, that's a funny way to describe him. Yeah. But he just meant in the fact that he's so pure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> i like that he's like uh he's like where are you from okay let me try to figure out a simpleton from your culture yeah mr bean he's like forrest gump but i don't think he meant as simple like, oh yeah like, just as trustworthy you know? <laughs> he's our forrest gump you're mr bean yeah yeah <laughs> anyway when the earthquake hit ono was working on a house close enough to his own house about an hour inland and although it was terrifying and literally the worst earthquake he had ever experienced like everything was relatively okay afterwards like a few garden fences had fallen down and telephone poles and shit like that but they had all lost power and he just went home and like set up his generators and was just looking after him his wife and his mother lived with them as well so pretty much like us a couple of weeks ago with the snow mm-hmm like everybody just you you kind of just have to get on with your own thing and get it done he had no tv he didn't see the news mm-hmm. or anything so he was oblivious to what was going on just how much was going on at least yeah. him and his family pretty much lived in their own little bubble for the next few days and just like i was just repeating myself now they were just trying to get their shit back together when the power came back on and they saw the devastation that had occurred this strange feeling of detachment like went away and all of a sudden they were looking at images of places that they used to go frequently Mm -hmm. like the beach and the seaside and stuff like that was only an hour away so naturally they have all these good memories of going like for ice cream in the evening or you know whatever and now they see that it's just totally flattened Mm -hmm. so 10 days after all this had gone down oh no his wife and his mother take a drive over the mountains to see for themselves the way they described this like was not only just a little bit lighthearted, but they were like oh let's go to the seaside Mm -hmm. like they seemed a little bit too upbeat Mm -hmm. anyway everything looked normal as they were driving there and as they got closer they started to see civil defense army vehicles emergency service vehicles but they still thought like oh well everything looks okay like you know until they got to a point where they were looking down at the town where the water had come in. And it was basically, they could see a line where the water stopped. And everything was picture perfect from there up. Mm-hmm. And everything was just gone from there down, destroyed. Yeah. That night when they got home and they all sat down for dinner, Ono said he remembered that he had two small beers. And then he had this like weird, lonely feeling. I think he was shocked. Like, yeah. And he started calling his friends, just 
random little thing. I think he just needed like some sort of normalcy. Uh, yeah, human interaction. Like yeah. So he said like there were nothing. Like he'd just call up, say, hey, how's it going? Whatever. Next morning he wakes up and he's going about the house, not doing a whole lot of anything. His wife had gone out for the day and his mom seems like pissed off for some reason, but he just puts it down to what they had seen yesterday. Mm. When his wife gets home, she's also pissed off with him. And he's like, what the fuck is going on? To which she says, I'm divorcing you. That's what the fuck is going on. Whoa. Bitch. And then? So he's confused as balls. And so his wife and mom sit him down. They tell him what happened like the night before. After these weird, needy phone calls, Ono had jumped down on all fours, started licking the tatami mats mm-hmm. and the futon mm-hmm. and squirming around on the ground, like acting fucking strange. What the fuck? His wife and mom just kind of sat there and they, they laughed at first, like awkward, uncomfortable laughter because they just didn't know what was happening. Right. But then he started to growl and snarl at them and shouting, you must die. You must die. Everyone must die. Everything must die and be lost. So that's when the wife and the mom were like, oh, fuck. He then runs out of the house and there's a field outside. It's an unsown, muddy field. All that's in it is just mud. And he starts rolling around in the mud, quote, as if being tumbled by a wave, shouting, they're over there. They're all over there. Look. Then he had stood up and walked out into the field calling, I'm coming to you. I'm coming over to that side. That was when his wife managed to drag him back inside, where his writhing and screaming carried on until around 5am, when he suddenly shouted, there's something on top of me, collapsed and fell asleep. He was and still is deeply ashamed of this, but had absolutely no recollection, like at all. This went on for three nights. The following evening, he saw people walking past his house. Parents and children, a group of young friends, a grandfather and a child. Quote, the people were covered in mud, he said. They were no more than 20 feet away and they stared at me, but I wasn't afraid. I just thought, why are they in these muddy things? Why don't they change their clothes? Perhaps their washing machine's broken. Such an innocent thought. (laughs) Right? He said what he was seeing kind of played out like flickering, like as if he was just watching a movie, but that he still felt perfectly normal and just assumed that these were normal, regular, tangible people. This shit was really taking its toll on Ono. Like he was exhausted. He would fall into a deep sleep at night and would then wake up 10 minutes later, full of life and refreshed, but he'd be stumbling around. And when he walked, he seemed just angry and dangerous Mm -hmm. he would give his his wife and mom nasty looks and apparently he even threatened them with a knife at one stage and just told them to drop dead and his whole thing the whole time was everyone else is dead so die Mm -hmm. and the way they described his like walking he would like bump into walls it it almost sounded like somebody was trying to do it for him oh like yeah like Like in my head i'm thinking like men in black you remember Yeah, yeah yeah so on the third day his wife and mom had begged him to go and see Reverend Kaneda. Ono said when Kaneda was looking at him, he felt nothing but hate towards him. He described feeling torn inside, like one part of him was this 
just wanted this priest to fuck off while the other part knew like this isn't right mm-hmm. and he wanted to be helped and like fixed so Kaneda performed a ritual ceremony on him there and then and it worked instantly he said my head was light in a moment the thing that had been there had gone i felt fine physically but my nose was blocked as if i was coming down with a heavy cold mm. so it turns out when they had taken their nice little trip over to the seaside yeah ono had actually gone to the beach and walked along enjoying an ice cream and just having a nice day he even left a sign on his truck saying disaster relief so as nobody would give him a ticket and he wouldn't have to pay for parking or anything seems a little bit selfish right right a little bit um what's the word like tone deaf yeah a little bit disrespectful yeah reverend canetta believes that this possession was a type of punishment these tortured souls didn't know what the fuck had happened and then here comes this fucking guy yeah (laughs) just strolling around not a care in the world and so that was why he was possessed like this. Now, as Ono drove home from the temple that day after the, after the exorcism, his nose started running, like flowing, and he couldn't stop it. But it wasn't like regular, like gross, snotty mucus. He said it was some pink jelly-like substance that he had never seen before or since. To this day, he can still see spirits. Uh-huh. And not even just people. He even sees like ghost cats and ghost dogs sick yeah all tsunami victims though covered in mud i guess yeah so i don't know if he has like some sort of like mediumship or something like can he see every dead person that's gone on or whatever Hmm. or whether it's only people who were victims of the tsunami that was unclear to me Uh uh-huh maybe it's just a tsunami victim so he doesn't forget to not be an asshole on the subject yeah maybe maybe that's it so, like I said earlier, like this was just one of many exorcism stories from Kaneta, and he's still helping people to this day. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons why Kaneta believes that uh, people have had so many encounters is that the Japanese don't separate the living and the dead. He says, Shoji is a sliding door made out of very thin paper. To Japanese people, death is like Shoji. Once you open that sliding door, you can go through to the other side and the living can still see through it, mm. can still see you through it. And he even said, like, even if it's just a shadow, we know that you're there. Yeah. So it was a really nice way of explaining, like, that spirituality. Yeah, it's a really good analogy. Yeah. And everywhere, um, apparently Jap- Japan is, like, when people do polls and stuff on how religious a country is and to see what country is the most religious. Yeah. They're almost always consistently placed at the bottom of being like the most non-religious country. I guess the most quote-unquote practical country. And yet, almost all of them believe strongly in this, you know, that the dead are just there on the other side. It's like an, an ingrained cultural belief. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool because it's almost as if it's like it, it's kind of like how people differentiate it's almost like they're they know the difference between an organized man-made mm-hmm. religion and spirituality and actual spirituality 
that they have explanations for based on their own experiences that makes it real for them yeah yeah and the cultural thing you know and it's funny that like the fact that you said it makes it real for them that was the continuing kind of theme almost throughout all of these different articles and the tv shows that i did watch where the professors were saying even if this isn't real life experiences it's real for the person who is experiencing it personally correct and that's the way these people are accepting it so like obviously he's not he's saying yeah like these people need counseling like yeah as does everybody but if that counseling comes through this priest over here or or whatever so be it as long as it helps Mm -hmm. anyway we could discuss that for hours and stuff there's a buttload of other encounters and that episode of unsolved mysteries was okay like it's definitely worth a watch i think if you're interested in this subject like i said i think most unsolved mysteries fans were unimpressed in general um and there is also i think like two or three main books written on the subject and they're all kind of called like tsunami ghosts or tsunami spirits Mm -hmm. like i was saying earlier one of my biggest fears is water specifically the sea so i've had this recurring nightmare since i was a child and And yet you moved to texas well i mean (laughs) ireland's surrounded by fucking sea yeah but um there's no flooding there well yeah for me anyway but anyway the tsunami itself and the footage is just terrifying i bet it is so and there's a lot of that in that episode there's like oh there's other videos as well out there definitely check them out and yeah that's tsunami spirits right on i really liked that one yeah i I thought it was quite a sensitive subject considering like how recent it all still is like a lot of these people are still like again 10 years ago is not that long ago no it's not people Um, are very much still feeling the effects yeah they're still grieving i think i'm pretty sure a lot of the areas are still being rebuilt yeah anyway my sources this week are cnn national geographic screenrant.com unsolved mysteries all that's interesting.com mary marie claire.com is that the ladies magazine yeah it is and longreads.com i like all that's interesting that's a good source Mm mm-hmm Sometimes I, use, I find that the the articles are quite hollow. It's just like sometimes they can be, but it'll I just like bring your bring your attention to a subject, and then you're like just getting into it, and you're like, wait, where's that's the rest? It? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely a good way to uh, find out about things. Okay, your turn. Tell me a story, please. Okay. <laughs> All right. So my sources are religion. Wikia, Wikipedia, nst.com. Cool, interesting news. Vice, Murderpedia, Capital Punishment, UK.org. Jesus Christ, such a list. I know, and the story is fairly short. <laughs> <laughs> so this week we're talking about Nur Masna Ismail, a.k.a. Mona Fandi. Mona Fandi. She was born on January 15, 1956 in Kangar Perlis in Malaysia. Oh, okay. So we're in Malaysia right now. Right on. So two Asian stories this week. Word. So not much is known about how she was grown up. 
I mean, how she grew up about her parents or anything like that. But what we do know is that she had a huge interest in dancing and singing early on. And these interests persisted well into adulthood. So Fandi met and married Muhammad Noor Afandi, Abdul Rahman. That's his whole name. And he loved her. Loved her so much. He'd heard her sing, dance, thought she was hugely talented. He was like, I'm your fucking biggest fan. You're amazing. I love you. Um, And this was not her first marriage. I know she was married before, but there's really zero on her first marriage. So this is the second man that she's married. Okay. So being her biggest supporter, he was like, hey, look, I'm I'm going to support you financially in order for you to pursue your dreams and her dreams were that she wanted to be the the biggest pop star that malaysia had ever seen and he was like dope let's do it (laughs) (laughs) so she gave herself the name state the stage name mona fandy which was inspired by her husband's nickname a fandy fandy get it yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) so they both set out to produce and record Fandy's first album called Diana, which you can still listen to some of her songs on YouTube. Cool. This album gained her some success, and this also scored her a few TV appearances. Unfortunately, her career wasn't taken off the way she wanted it to. So she decided to switch professions that could earn her more money. Her new profession was that of a BOMO. A BOMO is like a shaman or a witch doctor. Oh, okay. According to some sources. And she offered her services exclusively to upper class society. The story that pulled in her clients was that she she claimed that her like in like if you solicited her services, that they would provide uh, guaranteed results. Um, they worked every time mm. and they were her, I guess her, her witchcraft was highly, uh, powerful. Revered. Okay. It was super powerful. This, and so she started to get a name for herself with like rich people and politicians and stuff like that. Another story that pulled in her clientele was that she claimed to be well-versed in providing services to politicians for a long time also for the ruling political party called the UMNO or United Malays National Organization. And she did this by providing them charms and talismans. Belief in witchcraft and superstition is and was pretty common in Malaysia. So like Fandi and her husband were able to attract a good deal of business because this was a partnership for both of them. Right. So while she was, you know, da- you know, doing these things as a business and, you know, making money this way, she attracted um, the interest of a politician named Maslin Idris, a state assemblyman for the constituency of Batu Talem for the state of Pahang. So this guy went to Mona to solicit her services uh, to help him with his political his political career. Maslin obtained his education in the United States, and when he came back to Malaysia, he became a part of the ruling political party at the time, which is UMNO. At this point, Mona was in her business with her husband, Rahman, and 
they they got to a point in their business that they needed a, an assistant. So their assistant's name was Jeremy Hassan. So when Idris went to go see Mona, she said, oh, you know, well, shit, you, you know, if you want your political career to skyrocket, I got you, man. I got these yeah, talismans. Yeah, yeah. So she gave him a cane. So I guess like a walking cane mm-hmm. and something called a sab- sabatmi headdress. This particular talisman was supposedly owned by former Indonesian president Sukarno. President Sukarno. Mona claimed that Idris would become invincible when he held these talismans. Naturally, Idris was excited and decided, I fucking need these. You know? Yeah, yeah. So these talismans were sold to Idris for 2.5 million Malaysian ringgit. Idris promised the couple 500,000 as a deposit and 10 land titles for collateral until he got the rest. Okay. So Mona told Idris, cool, done deal. But before I give you these talismans, you know, for these to work and for your political career to take off, we need you to come to our house and we need to start off with a spiritual flower bath cleansing ritual. Okay. So the appointment was made and the date came for Idris to go to Mona's so they can do this ritual. Mona's husband and her assistant were also in attendance. Mona instructed Idris to lie on the floor face up. He was also instructed to keep his eyes closed as she placed flowers on him. Mona promised him that money would fall from the sky as he lay there. She told him, you just just lay there. It'll come. You'll feel it. Just wait for it. Okay. Again, I like to I want to stress that in Malaysia, witchcraft and superstition. Very common. People believe this stuff as if, you know, the sky is blue. And all this other stuff. Yeah. So if this powerful witch doctor is telling you money's going to fall from the sky, you better believe Idris is like, dope. I'm just going <laughs> to wait for it. You know, it's going to happen. I'm going to sit here and wait for it. Exactly. So he did that. Idris closed his eyes, waiting for the money to fall. And Jeremy then walked over to Idris. Remember Jeremy is the yeah, assistant. Yeah. And decapitated Idris with, his, with an axe. Holy shit. He then dismembered him further and partially skinned his body. So why did Mona kill him? Why did Mona kill him? This whole thing went south because Idris did not pay what he was supposed to pay. Uh. Some say that the land deals never came through. So technically Idris shorted them two million ringgit or 52... Uh, $526,000 US. That's a big chunk of change. It's a big chunk of change, yeah. Other articles say he didn't fully intend to pay and purposely shorted them. Right. What is fact is Idris did withdraw $12,000 US from his bank right before he went missing on July 2nd, 1992. After the body was divided into 18 pieces. No less, no more. (laughs) And buried in a hole near Mona's home. It was life as usual for the couple after that. 
the money that she received and I guess the money that she took off of him. Yeah. Well, you know, which is the money that he withdrew from the bank just right before going to her house. She used this to buy herself a facelift. She treated herself to a full day of shopping for clothes, shoes, and a Mercedes Benz. That's all over the 12 grand. Well, that and the other oh, and money the, that the he got. Oh, the 50 other grand. Yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. But I mean, he still shorted them. So he was yeah, like, yeah. well, I'm going to kill you. Okay. So, Federal Criminal Investigation Department Director Datu Zaman Khan led the search to find Idris after he was reported missing. On July 22nd, 1993, Khan and his team found Idris's dismembered body buried six feet deep in a pit covered with cement. Police also found an altar, statues of deities, knives, and an axe at the scene. They also found a 38 Smith & Wesson revolver belonging to Idris, buried near the body. Mona and Effendi and Jeremiah were apprehended, and they were detained in Bentog and Kuala Lumpur. On August 1993, the trio was charged for the murder of Idris. The guilty verdict of murder under Section 302 of the Malaysian Penal Code carried a mandatory death sentence. They pleaded not guilty and were tried at the Temerlo High Court by a seven-person jury. The trial included 70 witnesses and 295 exhibits were submitted to the court. This trial was heavily covered and sensationalized for several reasons. The couple were young and attractive. Fandy wore expensive and brightly colored outfits to and from court and had a smile for all the cameras. Like, a, and I'm not talking about like, you know, Mona Lisa smile. smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about Glowing. cheese smile. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? She was just one of those people that she wanted fame no matter how she got it. Like It, it would appear so. Because in court, she told the judge that she was a singer. And almost to prove that she was, she offered to sing to the court. Oh, okay. Yeah. How uncomfortable for everybody. <laughs> I would be like a lawyer in the background just being like, oh God, please don't start singing. Please don't start singing. <laughs> Fandy also would stop like in the middle of walking while she was being led by police. To pose. To pose for pictures. Nice. To smile for pictures so they make sure that they got like good angles of her. You feel me? Yeah. And she was also quoted saying, quote, looks like I have many fans. Wow. She certainly didn't look like someone who was facing death. So this is one of the huge reasons as to why is it, this whole thing was fucking weird. Like. She was like an anomaly, like, you know, you're facing death. Why are you acting like this? Yeah. So yeah. this sort of like mesmerized people, you know, and they knew that she was a witch doctor. So it was almost a mixture of fear and fascination. Yeah. Yeah. Here's this magical person. Yeah. Not afraid to die. Like. Exactly. So I'm going to quote the star about an incident that happened. When Fandy was coming to and from court, quote, in the commotion, a photographer accidentally pushed against her 
and in a flash, Mona showed her other side. The irate Bomo spat at the poor man, the spittle hitting him in the arm. Everyone froze as the man duly dropped his camera and everything he was carrying and sped to the washroom to clean himself. The fear of enraging one believed to have supernatural powers is very real after all. Wow. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't like anybody spit on me anyway, not some stranger spit, but to have the actual fear yeah, in you. Like- it's Think of, like, the the human, I guess, cultural, societal weaving of, like, a person in Malaysia at this time. Where we come from, if someone spits at you, you are quickly angered or disgusted. In this particular climate, in this environment, they are in fear. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. And just, again, if we do ever meet in public or whatever, like, don't spit on me. I don't, I don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> Another chilling fact was when Jeremy described how Idris was killed in his own words. I chopped his neck three times to separate the head from the body. I also cut his body into pieces before burying his remains. The court found them guilty and sentenced them to death by hanging. After hearing her sentence, Fandy, Mona Fandy, yeah. said, quote, I am happy and thank you to all Malaysians. That's weird. That That's feels a like a curse. <laughs> no, it, it, no, no, no. It sounds like a speech that an artist gives at the fucking Grammys. Well, yeah. That's what it fucking sounds like. Her and her handcuffed red carpet walks. That's crazy. Anti-death penalty movements, including Amnesty International, voice their opposition to the execution of the trio. The combination of heavy press and this group inadvertently made Fandy more famous than she ever was as a pop star. She knew this, and she fucking loved it. Yeah, ate mm-hmm. it up. Oh, yeah. So Fandy, her husband, and Jeremy tried to appeal this decision in 1999. Fucking 99, dude. Yeah. And it was dismissed. This trial was one of the last trials to be t- conducted in Malaysia before uh, tri- jury trials were abolished in January 1st, 1995. I didn't know that. That was, mm. Yeah, that was interesting. The three also tried to get a pardon from the pardons board of Pahang, but the board refused to help them. So they tried um, to get an appeal and a pardon, but they were like, nah, dude, we're not going to help you. <laughs> the verdict is, nah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the day before their execution, the prisoners were allowed an eight-hour visit with their families. Mona and her husband would leave behind children they had had from their marriage and from previous marriages. The couple advised them to take care of themselves and to, quote, grow up to be good people. This visit was overseen by a senior prisons officer who reported seeing a lot of crying and hugging during the visit. He also noted Fandy telling her children that she would never die. Huh. Did she actually believe this, like, do you think? I think she knew because of all the coverage. Oh, okay, okay. That she was basically becoming a legend. Right. 
The next morning before the sun rose, the trio were handcuffed and hooded in their holding cells and then led to the gallows where three nooses hung from a metal beam. They were placed over the trap doors, their feet strapped together, and the nooses fitted to their necks. At 5.59 a.m., the trap doors opened and down they plummeted. The public was excluded from viewing the execution. The only ones present were guards, officers, and the prison doctor. One of the officers told the Malay Mail newspaper that they expressed no remorse, even in their last moments. They didn't say a word and were calm, just like those who accept that they're going to die. That was a quote. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The bodies were left hanging for an hour before they were taken to the autopsy and then buried. After the execution, Idris's widow told reporters that she can finally put the past behind her and that she would focus on living her life and raising her children without the painful memories. So she thought. I'll tell you. Okay. (laughs) Just a quick note. One of the after effects of this trial are the repeated attempts to pass legislation that would outlaw witchcraft. But when I mentioned like, or so she thought, was because there is currently a movie made about her and her crime called Dakun. This movie was filmed in 2006. Okay. Literally seven seven years later. How fucked up is that? Fresh off the butt. Exactly. But the release of the film has been pushed back several times because the families were literally still alive and grieving. Yeah. Anyway, Astro Shaw, the film studio that shot the film, claims it's only loosely based on Fandy, (laughs) but they only released this after the family was vocal about not appreciating the exploitation of their late father. Of course, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so like the film got pushed back, pushed back, and then finally it did end up getting released. It got released on April 5th of ni- of 2018. Daku netted 1.5 million ringgits on its first day of screening throughout Malaysia and Brunei. The highest opening night gross for the studio's Astro Shaw. Wow. So it's a record-breaking fucking... Basically. Vice wrote a very interesting article on why Mona Fandy is currently trending. Because she is. I don't know what it is, but I've just been seeing her everywhere. And I was like, okay, we normally don't cover stories that are mainstream. But for some reason, I'm seeing it everywhere. And there has to be a reason. The story was calling to me, so to speak. Some Malaysians are beginning to romanticize Fandy mm. in light of how the rich and power-hungry politicians are fucking off sa- uh, safety protocols during this pandemic. Sound familiar? Right. Yeah, yeah, of course. Some Malaysians are recalling her memory and just her as a person as being the people's hero. And they think that she is the people's hero that all Malaysians need during these times. Mm. I don't know if I can agree with that, but okay. No, I'm saying just... No, 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 I know, I know. Yeah. That's why people are but that, that just turning goes her to into sh- like... Well, that just goes to show how angry they are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's like, if no one's killing off these rich politicians, if she were still alive, she'd probably she do be. that for us. Yeah, yeah. 
You know what I mean? Just to give you an idea of the civil unrest in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. But anyways, I have pictures. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll include these on the Instagram. Yeah. This is Fandy's husband and the assistant. I've just been looking at those two, yeah. And this is Fandy coming to and from court. That's one of the better pictures of her because I've just seen some here. As you were telling the story, I was looking them up. And some of the pictures are actually quite scary looking. Yeah, it's almost like a fierce happiness. Yeah, maybe that has something to do with the, the facelift. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I forgot about that. Like They are some sharp, sharp cheeks. Uh, but obviously, like, they're, they're trying to paint her as, like, you know, oh, the crazy witch or whatever as well. So, but yeah, wow. Yeah. So, hopefully, because I, like I said, I have seen some, like, I've noticed that there's podcast episodes, uh, YouTube videos on her. I didn't watch any of them because I didn't want. Yeah. Yeah. To, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's a lot of the same information because of this. Like, I kept going through sources and sources and finding a lot of repeated information. Yeah, so, I mean, that's going to happen anyway. But Right. Um, so I just found other things that sort of to sort of supplement her story. So hopefully you heard something here that's a little, 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 new, different, little different, little new information. Yeah. Yeah, because I know like personally, I like to. Um, like the handful of podcasts that I do listen to that are true crime and stuff, because obviously now I've stopped listening to a lot of them. So as I don't yeah you know just spew yeah. out that same information that i've like learned yeah but too. um but i do like to listen to them both cover the same things oh. you know what i mean to see like their different perspectives when like you know say ted bundy or something yeah you listen to an episode and one podcast might leave out this particular piece of information mm. might not even be an important thing but it's just like oh well look now didn't know that so anyway hope you enjoyed <laughs> that was really cool thank you Dulce. yeah no problem all right creeps well that'll do that that'll do us that'll do pig that'll do check us out on instagram check us out on facebook we're gonna do the polls for the next movie uh we're gonna do the movie watching on april 3rd check out our red bubble if you haven't already and as soon as we get off we're gonna start filming more stuff for the patreon sign up for max report shop either way <laughs> it's fine <laughs> Yeah, good job. I think that's the first time you've ever done that. I think it's because you were lagging and buffering and I saw you were like yeah, I was trying to suffering think of, with that. <laughs> I was like, mm. I'm trying to think of what I had to say. But no, I was just going to say one more time about the uh, Lawless Eyewear. 15% off with code name CREEP, all capital letters. So if you are in the market for some new sunglasses, which you can modify and make your own, blah, blah, blah. Go for it. Yeah, start star wars so, no what's the word i'm spaceship sunglasses yeah space sunglasses oh yeah because they went to space yeah i was like what? <laughs> i'm like i'm trying i'm trying yeah, i'm trying to meet you halfway buddy but i don't know what the fuck you're talking yeah, about yeah <laughs> i'm gonna go get more caffeine yeah okay and, uh, yeah thanks guys see y'all next week okay bye bye the verdict is nah dude